We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. We're going to be talking about all sorts of things today, but we're going to be focusing mostly this show on, yes, the return of the Bundesliga. Uh, we will go in depth. We'll actually have multiple parts as we talk about not not just the Bundesliga, but what this means for the sport going forward. And not just Bundesliga fans, I think, will enjoy this, be interested in this. Uh, and there will probably be a whole lot more Bundesliga fans after the, the next week. We'll also be talking about the legendary feud between Landon Donovan and Jurgen Klinsmann. We'll be talking about Zooms, uh, something that I think everybody has become very accustomed to uh, doing each and every day in order to communicate with folks out there. We're talking about American stadiums or stadia, if you want to get technical or real hoity-toity. But first, joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you doing on this Saturday morning? Uh, we were recording this on a Saturday morning to give ourselves a little bit of a break on Sunday. Everybody, as I've told you uh, multiple times, the digital folks there are working their asses off. We want to make sure we give them as much time to uh, rest and recuperate as possible. Mossy, how you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah, the Saturday thing was an Alex Dowd initiative, which you and I acquiesced to. So uh, yeah, it's, a, <laughs> it's a good way to start the weekend by... Uh, taping this podcast. How has your week been, my friend? What have you been doing? You know, I'm always so intrigued by what uh, is on your watch list out there and what you have uh, or are planning to watch. Well, on the television front, I have finished binging Ozark, which I thought was terrific. Season two of My Brilliant Friend came to an end uh, this past Monday. Incredible show. And also the uh, HBO documentary about the Atlanta child murders came to an end. I've been texting with Keith Costigan about that. He's firmly in the Wayne Williams committed some of the crimes, but not all of them camp, which I believe is where you are as well. So I've, you know, I've got still the Chicago Bulls documentary. I've got Killing Eve, but I do definitely have to find another show to binge here. I will say, though, I've also been doing a lot of reading. And right now I am reading a book on the history of St. Petersburg, Russia, which is a city that you and I both visited in the summer of 2018. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
beautiful city and I'm enjoying learning about the history of it. I'm devouring the book, everything from Peter the Great all the way to present time. It's the birthplace of Vladimir Putin. So terrific book so far. It's also in, in when we talk about history and when we were over in Russia, obviously the incredible history and most histories relative to the United States are much longer and much more robust. But St. Petersburg, and correct me if I'm wrong, Masi, as I remember it, is one of those where it only has a few hundred years type of history. It's created out of, in a marshland out of, out of nothing. And so relative to the rest of the incredible history and the thousands of years from a Russian perspective, this is a not a relatively, it's a very new type of uh, history when it comes to St. Petersburg, right? Correct. Early 1700s. And, you know, uh, when I was in, in Russia in the summer of 2018, I became aware of the rivalry between Moscow and St. Petersburg. It is a very real thing. Uh, I, we were based in Moscow, but I took a day trip to St. Petersburg. And when I came back to Moscow and I was gushing about St. Petersburg, I got a lot of like snarky, like, well, we have that too, you know, kind of responses, you know, they, you know, Moscow's been around for a thousand years. They consider themselves like the true Russian city and St. Petersburg is kind of this nouveau riche PSG, like, you know, new kid on the block, you know, more European, like westernized and not really a true representation of Russia. So it's a fun little dynamic. Well, I, I, I think I told you a couple of weeks ago that I was watching the movie uh, Reds and there was a scene shot in St. Petersburg at the square there, the famous square there. And my kids were looking and said, hey, we were there. Uh, so there is there is incredible history. It was a fun, I, I spent the night there uh, with the family. We had a really good time, wonderful meal. It's very, very different than Moscow, completely two different worlds. And I get that whole rivalry and, and understand why that exists. So what have I been doing? You know, I continue to, you mentioned the uh, Atlanta Child Murders uh, documentary on HBO. I was underwhelmed, all right? Five-part series. Now, I, uh, I have watched every documentary, read everything, uh, listened to every podcast when it comes to that fascinating and, and horrible story. But I, I, I did not learn anything new, to be quite honest. I mean, that was the whole point of this is that it sheds new light on the, on the subject that has been gone over time and time again. I, I didn't really see that. I didn't really learn a whole lot uh, new from, uh, from that. But if, if you're just coming to it for the first time, you're going to realize how big this was and how at times underreported it was, and the mystery that still continues because there were a lot of kids. And with, with Wayne Williams, who definitely probably was involved, you know, definitely was involved, I think, after watching this and after watching all of those things. But there's a whole lot of other cases that were swept under the, uh, the rug. The other thing that I did watch, Mossy, have you ever seen the movie Galaxy Quest? No. All right, so in 1999, a movie called Galaxy Quest came out. Not a whole lot of fanfare. It was a relative success. It was a, uh, I don't even explain it if you haven't seen it. It starred Tim Allen of Home Improvement, but it also had Sigoni Weaver, uh, Tony Shalhoub, a wonderful cast, uh, Alan Rickman. And it was basically, the premise was this Star Trek type of cast actually is you know on that circuit where they're doing conventions and everything and actually gets pulled into an actual space odyssey if you will because a alien <laughs> society has been watching and doesn't know that what they are watching is an actual tv production and therefore equates it with this incredible technology and ability and confuses them and goes to get them to help defend themselves from other aliens out there that's that's the premise of it i think it was a movie ahead of its time 
I think it's a wonderful movie for everybody. Kids and, uh, and adults would love it. But what I watched was a documentary on the making of that movie. The great Harold Ramis was originally scheduled to direct and pulled out of it. So there's all these incredible twists and turns on how this got made, what it was. It's an incredible love letter, I guess, this documentary, uh, an ode to not just the movie, but this cult following that has emerged after this movie came, uh, came out. So if you get a chance to watch it, I, I think even if you watch the documentary without having seen the movie, you would enjoy it um, because it, it pulls you in and it celebrates, it never talks down or it certainly never ridicules or makes fun of this cult-like status and this wonderful fan base that has emerged out of it. So I, th I just thought that was wonderful. I had a really good time uh, uh, watching that. Uh, I'm still, though, scraping the bottom of the barrel, my friend. I, I got to find some other stuff. You mentioned the uh, the Jordan documentary, which right now, there's a lot of people out there that are saying this is the best sports documentary ever. Maybe our, our senses are heightened because of what we are right now. We're desperate for something right now, but glowing, glowing reviews of the Jordan documentary. Ten part, and as everybody knows out there, I don't watch anything until it's absolutely done, so I'm waiting until that final episode runs, and then I will binge watch the entire thing, and I will give you uh, my uh, my review of it. Anything else, Mossy? Uh, no, that's it. All right, listen, let's start talking about soccer. And, and not just soccer, but let's start talking about people actually kicking the ball. Uh, what we're going to do is we are going to go through the news. And if you haven't heard the news, well, I mean, you have heard the news. Everybody's heard the news that that's involved in soccer, I would think, that the Bundesliga is back. Uh, we are recording this, as I said, on the Saturday. A week from today, if all goes as planned, fingers crossed, the Bundesliga, one of the great leagues in the world uh, with some great players uh, and some wonderful stories and teams, will be back actually kicking a ball. They'll be doing it behind closed doors in front of no fans, as we all know, but they will attempt to finish the season that started, obviously, in 2019 and finish it up. I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, nine games left. Is that uh, ultimately what we have? Correct. Okay, so that's what's going to happen. So what we're going to do is we're going to break this Bundesliga talk into three types of seconds, sections. We're going to go with... How we got here, uh, basically, what, or, and what has changed over, uh, over the last month, let's say. We're going to do a Bundesliga brush-up because we know there's going to be a lot of people that maybe haven't watched Bundesliga. We've been covering it at Fox now for a number of years. It's been a privilege and a pleasure to uh, do it, and it's wonderful. I've really become immersed in it and, and really learned to, uh, you know, to respect the history and the wonderful league that it is because I'll, I'll be honest, I didn't follow it a whole lot before. And then we'll finish it up with, the American angle, which is always a really, really important component of the Bundesliga and one of those things that have brought a lot of people into the Bundesliga tent because there are a lot of Americans that are playing over there. It is a league that loves American players and not just signing American players, but actually playing American players. And when you watch our national team, it is and has been for a number of years highly populated by a lot of players that play in the Bundesliga. And if that's something that you're looking uh, to watch when Bundesliga comes back online, we got that for you. So. I guess let's start off, Mossy, with how we arrived here. And I think we talked last week about how the fact that, obviously, not all countries and cultures are created equally when it comes to this crisis that we are going through. And different countries and cultures have had much uh, better or worse times. And when it comes to Germany, I think relative to most countries out there, uh, you have to say that they have handled it well uh, and they have positioned themselves to enable themselves to come back in the form of sports. 
And it's not without risk because no, no, no matter what country you are or what league you are, you're always going to have uh, some risk. You're trying to decide how much risk is acceptable risk. And I think Germany has come to the point where they believe, and not just the sports, and in this case, the soccer, but the government has said, okay, this is something that we're going to do with plenty and plenty of protocols uh, out there. And so over the last, I, I have to say over the last month, this, is, this has been talked about, but that it's actually going to happen is the result of, I'm sure, a lot of negotiation. I'm sure a lot of both sides coming together and at times probably disagreeing with, is this the best course of action? And that jury is still out. And ultimately coming in and saying, this is what we are going to do with the knowledge that it might go wrong. And if and when it goes wrong, you're going to have to shut it down again. And that would not only be a, a lethal blow to the Bundesliga, but I think to a lot of other sports, which is why everybody is kind of looking at this, as we said, as a possible pathway back to playing. All right. So I, I think I framed that up correctly. Mossy, anything you'd like to add before we, uh, before we delve into this? Well, no. So as you mentioned, uh, we're going to pick up where we left off, which is match day 26. There are nine rounds left in the season. There are all sorts of rules and regulations. We don't have to go through all of them, but some of the main bullet points that caught my attention, all the teams have gotten into a one-week quarantine ahead of this first match. They're all staying in either hotels or in their training facility. Players are having their temperatures checked every single day in training, and they're being tested twice a week, including the day before a game it's going to be. A maximum of 322 people are going to be allowed inside the stadium. That includes everybody from players, coaches, referees, medical staff, ball boys, security, television, production staff. Everybody on the bench is going to have to wear a mask. They're regulating how many people can be in the locker room at any given time. They're staggering players' arrivals. And also, after the game, players are being encouraged to shower back home or in the hotel, and they're going to have to do their own laundry. So there are all sorts of rules in place like that that they think, as you said, uh, is going to limit the risk here. You mentioned that the substitutes and everybody in the stadium that's not on the field is going to be required to wear a mask, including the coach, although there's a little leeway in that the coach can scream and yell. He can take his mask off and scream and yell, which, and I think I asked this last week, if, why doesn't everybody wear a mask? Why don't you just play, all, all the players have to wear a mask. I mean, if, that, if that's such a concern, and you mentioned all the testing that's going on. The other thing is, it trying, and, and I've said this before, this is not about being fair, because the reality is, when you look at the Bundesliga teams, there are certain teams that have had a quote-unquote advantage relative to the actual province and region and city that they are in, maybe being ahead of other, other teams and able to train in, in greater groups and that kind of stuff. So you can always, you are always going to find things where there is a disadvantage and an advantage. This is not about being fair. This is about doing, this is about trying to be as fair as you possibly can with the understanding that it's never going to be fair. That once again, this is getting the in a crap situation, making the best of that crap situation. And at times it's the least bad type of solution uh, that, we, that we have right now. The testing there is going to continue on. If one person tests positive, it doesn't necessarily mean that that, uh, that entire team is out or that the Bundesliga shuts down. They, I think they have built in and recognized that there are going to be positive tests. It's just a matter of who, when, how many, and if it's something that they feel they can, uh, they can control. You mentioned the quarantine. Uh, you mentioned the, the number of people in the stadium. And just because it's a closed-door scrimmage, that's not a scrimmage, just because it's a closed-door game in front of no spectators doesn't mean that you just flip the lights on and off you go. There are still people uh, that are there and 300 people. Now, they will be spread out. Uh, just just in general, as will possibly the bench. I know they're talking about possibly putting the players that 
as opposed to being on the traditional bench where you're sitting next to each other, having the players be in the stands and therefore it's much easier to distance themselves. And then I guess the, the coach just turns around and points to whoever he wants and that person, uh, that person comes in. Uh, what, as it comes to uh, the substitution, the substitution rule that we found out this past week has been approved by IFAB, this new, I guess it would be uh, extension of the amount of substitutions uh, going to five. It's up to whatever league if you want to implement it, but you are legally allowed to have up to five substitutions. Now, that's only three moments in the game when you can make those substitutions. Halftime doesn't count, but you're allowed to have five, which obviously is an increase uh, increase in two. Uh, two. Have I framed that correctly, Mossy? Uh, you have, yeah. And, you know, teams are being encouraged to have bigger squads than usual to account for the possibility of players testing positive and having to go under quarantine. So you're going to see a lot of youth players promoted to these first-team squads. On the fan front, Much to your chagrin, they've decided against pumping in crowd noise, but they are going to allow cardboard cutouts of fans at stadiums. And this is actually important. If groups of fans congregate outside a stadium for a game, that team will automatically forfeit that match. They're really trying to discourage fans from doing what those bozos in Paris did for that PSG Dortmund Champions League game. Wow. I mean, it's humans don't like to be told what to do. Uh, Something that I found in my almost 50 years of existence on, uh, on planet Earth. But I hope in this case, they recognize the ramifications of trying to prove whatever it is they try to prove when they're getting together uh, as a group. That's, that's hard. And controlling supporters groups, even in, in normal and in the best of times, is not, is not always easy. But I hope, I hope that that is enough of a deterrent going forward. Uh, we talked about the five uh, substitutions and you know the potential for the tactical part of the game to change, not the potential, it will change. The way that you tactically go about doing uh, uh, coaching a game uh, will change with another couple of uh, substitutions. But also the tactics of when you want to do it. As I mentioned, only three times in the game you're allowed to do it. So being strategic about how you do that. There is the question, if this goes long term, and I do believe that this is one of those things that will stick long term, does it benefit the super clubs out there that can stockpile even better talent with the understanding they actually can use it. I, I, was, I, also, I was also thinking about the fact that if this goes long time, and even in the short term, those defenders that are able to withstand the incoming and uh, increased arrival of fresh players are going to be that much more valuable. Uh, because you're not going to be substituting necessarily the defenders. And so their ability to deal with incoming fresh and I guess fast talent is going to go into that assessment uh, of what they are. And so their value, those that can withstand the new five substitution better than others, those are the ones whose value are going to increase. All right. What else uh, in terms of how we got here should we, uh, should we hit on before we move on, Mossy? Well, one thing I thought was very interesting is they said they did not even consider neutral venues. If they were going to come back, it was going to be allowing each team to play in their stadium. And as far as I know, every club is on board with these games counting uh, towards the title and European places and promotion relegation. There hasn't been any sort of acrimony on that front. And, you know, while in England, this whole neutral venue business has become the big sticking point. Uh, the teams near the bottom of the table don't think that if games are being, being played in neutral venues, they should be relegated under those circumstances. So uh, Germany, they, they sidestep that mess by just determining right away if we're going to come back it's going to be each team playing in their own stadium and that was enough for everybody to get on board with these games counting 
And it was also relative to the uh, the easing of the restrictions of traveling between states in Germany. And, and we know just from a pure size perspective, you can get to places uh, very quickly relative to some place like the United States. But yeah, that was that was interesting because I we've seen a lot of leagues. And this gets back to the fact that you know, way, the way Germany, Germany has handled this crisis is obviously very different than the way that other countries, including, including England right now. And so even if England wanted to do it, I'm not sure that they can you know, because of the, you know, the increased risk and the increased problem that they find themselves in, uh, in right now. But yeah, that was, you know, that was, that was something that was talked about for a long time. And, you know, we know that the advantage now of playing in your home stadium decreases without the actual fans in there. Uh, but, but there is still an advantage of playing in your home stadium. I, I do think that the opposing teams coming in, that's because when they talk about home field advantage, it's not something that you can quantify or qualify or even put your, put your finger on. It's just something that you feel. Now, obviously, there's the, the numbers behind it in terms of teams winning more when they are at home. But it's all based on oftentimes just a, a feeling that players have that they are under more pressure, that they are not necessarily supposed to win this game because they are playing away. Not all, not all teams. But there will still be a little bit of an advantage playing at home, but it will dramatically decrease, I think, the, the numbers, if you, have, if you will, uh, the traditional historic numbers of what people do at home versus what they do away. I think it's going to get thrown completely out of whack in this type of scenario. And uh, you mentioned we're, we're starting up May 16th. Uh, the final round, if all goes according to plan, would be in late June. And the Champions League presumably will start sometime soon after that. And I've heard a lot of talk that German clubs might all of a sudden have an advantage in the Champions League. Bayern and Leipzig are still in it. And that because the Bundesliga is the first league that's going to be up and running, they're going to have played a lot of games and be kind of back into the swing of things. That's a conversation for way farther down the road. But that's an interesting element of this whole thing as well. Meanwhile, in France, where they've pulled the plug on the league, they're very worried about PSG and Lyon and, and feeling like they're going to be at a major disadvantage in the Champions League because they wouldn't have played all these games leading up to it. Champions League? <laughs> Playoffs? <laughs> I, I hadn't even thought about Champions League, honestly. That that I, I think it should be way down on the totem pole of things to be worried about right now. And I know it's not. And I know there's money and I know there's prestige and I know there's ramifications for next year and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I hadn't even thought. In the same way that both FIFA and the, the actual federation or confederations out there, for example, CONCACAF have come out very publicly and said, this isn't about qualifying for the World Cup right now. We are going to do everything we possibly can to get the, get the leagues back on course. And FIFA has said the same thing. I think that has to be the priority right now. And I'm not saying that there, there, there isn't going to be Champions League, but I hadn't even thought about Champions League in a while. If, if Champions League gets done or doesn't get done, I, I honestly don't care. That's not a priority to me because I think that, that that will still be around and that can much more easily be – I think – not much easier because it's easy just to say, no, you're not having a league. But I think that I can stomach and I think the world can stomach the Champions League going away for this year much more so than, uh, than leagues and that day in and day out and week in and week out type of existence. I, I, Champions League is almost a, it's a luxury when it comes to this sport. Wonderful luxury and I love, I love watching it. But all right, Masi. All right, so now we've said how we got to this point, a week away from the Bundesliga coming on. Uh, let's, let's give the folks out there uh, a little brush up 
on where we stand when it comes to this league because we know that there are going to be a lot of eyes on this. I'll be really interested to see what those numbers are. We saw this past weekend incredible uptake or uptick and surge of uh, numbers when it came to the South Korean league that was playing and the amount of people that logged on to watch South Korean league games happening. So I'll be interested to see if that same effect happens with the Bundesliga next week, which means that a lot of people that don't follow Bundesliga have not followed Bundesliga are going to come in just to satisfy that desperation, that craving that we have for high level soccer being played uh, at the professional, at the professional level. So People that are coming into this tent, hopefully a lot of them are coming to this tent, they may not have that, that history and that tradition and that, that understanding. And I hope you do welcome people that come into that. Uh, don't be that ass out there that's you know, snooty and with your Bundesliga nose in the air. And it doesn't matter how they come into the tent, just get them into the tent and invite them in. And who knows, maybe some of them will stay. Uh, and that would be good for the Bundesliga. So, Mossy, give us a little brush up on what they are going to see from a table standpoint, from a club standpoint, from a storyline standpoint when it comes to the Bundesliga when they tune in next weekend? Well, look, I've been trying to sell this league to people for five years uh, because we cover it at Fox. And the thing I always say is it's exciting football. There's lots of goals. It's routinely the highest scoring of Europe's top leagues. It's become this breeding ground for young stars because the Bundesliga can't compete financially with the Premier League. They've carved out this niche as a breeding ground for young stars. So you can watch the Jaden Sanchos and Erlen Hollins and Kai Havertz grow. And also, it is the most relevant European league for the U.S. men's national team. And, you know, we'll get to that uh, in a second and go through all the players there. The one issue we've had in selling this league, if I'm being honest, is Bayern Munich's dominance. Uh, they've won it seven seasons in a row. They're going for eighth straight. But I will say, things have even gotten better on that front. Last season, Dortmund topped the table for most of the campaign. Bayern only pipped them at the end. It came down to the very last round. And this season, it's been very topsy-turvy at the top of the table. We have four teams right now separated by just six points. Bayern are in first place. They're four points clear of Dortmund, who are second. Leipzig are third, five points back. And then you even have Borussia Mönchengladbach, six points back. So you have a legitimate title race to get into. You also have Leverkusen in fifth, just two points out of fourth. So there's a fun top four race to get in there into as well. And of course, a relegation battle down farther down the table. So I think there's a lot going on here. We were talking about how, you know, while Liverpool are running away with the Premier League, PSG obviously doing what they normally do in Liga, the Bundesliga this season was giving us really interesting, intriguing races all up and down the table. So it's exciting to kind of pick that up where we left off. And look, I don't care if you come in to, uh, to watch the Bundesliga with eyes wide open or if you come in to hate watch. If you want to hate watch, that's not a problem, okay? And there's certainly some teams that uh, would fill that criteria when you talk about Bayern Munich. Bayern Munich are the super club, as you mentioned, in Germany and have been for a long time. The most money, the most history, the most prestige, the biggest names, the biggest stars, and obviously the, uh, the most success. They are, they are the Cowboys and the Yankees. And I guess the Lakers all wrapped up into one. As many people, and maybe even more people, hate Bayern Munich as love them. Uh, and it's, but, it's, but everybody will watch, either because they love them and their incredible, their incredible fan base that they already have. And not just domestic fan base, but fan base all over the world. Or they hate them, but they have to watch them in the same way that you would watch the, the Cowboys or 
take your uh, take your team out there that has been so successful that you watch them just to possibly see them lose. And as you mentioned there, over the last couple of years, there has been that challenge. Most of it's been uh, when it comes to Borussia Dortmund, who some would argue ha- are doing it with one foot behind their back because of the way that they sell players and the way that they bring players up and then sell them on for a tremendous amount of money. Wonderful business, but in that constant effort to best Bayern Munich, that is one thing that has has worked against them, I guess, if you will. They're not, gonna, they're not apologizing for it, and their fans are incredible it, it, with the support that they have because they have They've accepted the fact that they're going to see some great players that ultimately are going to go to, quote unquote, bigger clubs and bigger leagues for a tremendous amount of money that's then going to get put back into the league. And it's just a steady, not trickle, I mean, it is a, just a, stre- a steady flow of great players that have come through that organization over the last few years and then been sold on uh, for a lot of money. And if you are one of those who is a romantic and a traditionalist and uh, wants to fight against the man and doesn't believe in anything that's manufactured or artificial or plastic, then RB Leipzig is the team for you uh, <laughs> with, the, uh, with the association that they have with uh, not just the sports drink that they have, but this is a team that was created out of nothing and has taken incredible amount of criticism for the way that it was created, especially over there. And I guess at this point, we should also mention the 50 plus one rule, Mossy. I'm going to let you do that because you do it very succinctly and quickly and clearly so that people understand and it and it goes to what germany is with regards to 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 soccer and football and that's one of the reasons why i think it was one of the it is the league that's coming back first not just the ability to do so but also the desire and how important the bundesliga is not just to german soccer fans but to german yeah 50 plus one is this rule they've had in place for a lot of years Uh, that stipulates that a majority of the voting shares of a club have to belong to club members. It's a way to avoid what's happened in the Premier League where uh, you have these rich foreign owners come in, whether it's an Arab sheik or Russian oligarch, and a club sort of lives at the whims of this one guy. The 50 plus one rule helps preserve somewhat of a community feel to these clubs. And because we've seen uh, certain teams be accused of circumventing those rules. They've gotten a lot of grief, as you mentioned, Leipzig being one, Hoffenheim the other. So, yeah, that is sort of an interesting storyline that's, uh, frankly, before the stoppage, that was the storyline in, in German soccer because there had been these protests at games over it. So, uh, yeah, I, I would say if, if you're adopting a team, you know, the, the beauty of the Bundesliga is Bayern Munich cast such a shadow that – Pretty much any team you pick other than Bayern Munich is kind of a hipster pick. You're not going to be accused of being a glory hunter. Dortmund are the second best, biggest club in Germany. They have world-class players. They're vying for major trophies. And yet nobody's going to accuse you of being a glory hunter for picking Dortmund. Even they retain a certain charm. So there's really any which way you can go there. But if you do pick Leipzig or Hoffenheim, as you said, you are going to incur some grief on the whole 50-plus-one front. You're going to be accused of rooting for a plastic team that's circumventing the rules. So there is that element to consider. Oh, that little Dortmund just, you know, <laughs> punching above their weight. Just little guys, just give them a chance. Whatever. No, but yes, there is there is something for everybody in this league. And you mentioned the high scoring. You mentioned uh, the wonderful players. And from an American perspective, and we have mined this for a number of years, and rightfully so, because it is so accepting and accommodating to American players, Mossy. Give the folks a little bit of a, of, a, of a taste of why this league is so important to American players and how 
on any given day, Saturday, Sunday, whatever whatever team it is. And by the way, in not just the, uh, the Bundesliga, but in the second division, there are Americans playing and Americans that are doing well. And the appreciation and the respect and the value that they put on Americans makes this league something to watch. Yeah, again, uh, even with Christian Pulisic no longer being around, he's a guy that left last summer uh, Dortmund to go to Chelsea. I still think this is clearly the most relevant European league uh, in terms of the U.S. men's national team. So if you're somebody who cares first and foremost about the U.S. men's national team and you want to follow European football through that lens, you can see sort of the contours of Greg Berhalter's, Berhalter's team over the next couple of years as he prepares World Cup qualifying and hopefully the 2022 World Cup. You can sort of see that develop in the Bundesliga because you have guys like Tyler Adams and Wesson McKinney, Giovanni Reina, Josh Sargent, Zach Steffen, even John Brooks, I think all project as key sort of core guys that are going to be a big part of whatever the U.S. does moving forward. So, yeah, I think, you know, all those guys I just mentioned are all fascinating for various reasons. And, and it's something that we've, we've enjoyed covering the last few years for Fox. Well, I had the incredible uh, pleasure of interviewing uh, Gio Reyna, who you mentioned, who is this up-and-coming American player playing over in Dortmund. We interviewed him for indoor soccer, which you can catch on uh, Monday. If you're listening to this on Sunday or Monday, uh, check it out on, uh, on FS1, our, uh, our weekly magazine show. And you know, he's just another one in a long list of Americans that have, first off, recognized and targeted uh, Germany as an opportunity. Uh, as an opportunity to get the training that they need, to get the lifestyle that they need, ultimately get the playing that they need, and that opportunity to use that platform to go on to bigger and better things in the same way that a lot of players have used that. But as you go back and watch, or as you watch this next uh, next week, and it goes back to, to what I said earlier, there are going to be a lot of people that are going to come into the Bundesliga tent, okay? And... For those of you that are Bundesliga watchers and aficionados out there, in the same way that I always tell people to, if, if there's an American football person that wants to taste test soccer, you got to make sure that it is inclusive, that you are welcoming people, that you have open arms, that you put that arm around their shoulder, social distancing notwithstanding, but you make them feel welcome. The worst thing in the world from a, a general soccer perspective is when somebody who's not into soccer comes in and feels like they can't understand or they're not being welcomed or it's inhospitable or people are being snobs or elitists about what they're, what they're doing. So this is a great opportunity for the Bundesliga folks, I think, to be there from the beginning, to be the first and to bring some people in. And so Definitely do that if you're, into, if you're into the Bundesliga. Bring people in and make them feel welcome because I think there's going to be a lot of people next week that are watching. And we mentioned that it's, it's not just soccer leagues that are watching this Bundesliga and how this thing unfolds. I think that there's a lot of professional leagues out there that are going to watch this and see what happened. We've talked about the potential for best practices to evolve um, both on and off the field in terms of what, they're, uh, what they are doing, the potential for maybe even some mistakes to happen and lessons to be learned on how not to do things when other leagues and other sports, either soccer or any other sport, come back, uh, come back online. I, I, once again, I'm knocking on wood here because I, I hope that this, is, that this is successful. I hope it doesn't give us a false sense of security, but I do hope that it does provide you know, some hope that it does provide some opportunity for us to look and say, this 
possibly can be done and can be done on a consistent basis where it is a level of safety and ultimately a, a level of risk that is, for lack of a better word, acceptable uh, in, in what, we are, uh, what we are doing. But it is not without risk and it could go, it could go massively wrong. And that would, be, that would be horrible for the Bundesliga, for Germany, for the sport and for the world because the world will be watching this. This will, this will transcend the actual sport. There will be a lot of eyes that say, hey, this is what's happening today. The Bundesliga, you might not have followed it. You might not know a whole lot about it, but this is big for the world. Mosty, anything else about the Bundesliga before we move on? No, again, on the adopting a, a team front, you know, a lot of cool stories from covering the, the league the last few years. Xander, uh, a prompter guy who never followed soccer before, has really gotten into it. He adopted Wolfsburg as his team. That, that's a fun one you can follow. Ashley Barmacy, our graphics person who sits next to me in the control room every weekend, she adopted Hertha Berlin, which, by the way, is not a bad shout right now because they have a new investor that's put a lot of money into that club. They spent the most money of any club in Europe in January buying guys like Piatek and Mateus Cunha and Santiago Escasibar. Uh, they just hired Bruno Labadia as their new coach. I think it's a pretty good hire. So, you know, and it's Berlin. You could plan a fun trip to go see a game. It's the capital, great city. You can, they play their games at the Olympic Stadium, which is, you know, the famous, famous venue. So, you know, there, there's, I mean, there's a lot of fun possibilities there if you're going to adopt the team. So I, I think uh, if you, somebody that hasn't followed the Bundesliga before and you're going to start following it now, I do not think you'll be disappointed. Well, I'm raising my uh, solo cup stein here that I have. Uh, prost to everybody that this goes well and uh, that people enjoy it, uh, and we and we should enjoy it. I'll be really interested to see. You mentioned the um, you know the fact that they're not going to pipe in any crowd noise. That starkness that is going to be there that I think is going to I think is going to wear thin, to be quite honest. But that starkness is going to be there. You will hear the players shouting. You will hear the coaches shouting. You will hear the echoes uh, coming off. It will be a jarring type of return to soccer if you have never watched a game played in a closed environment uh, like that. And it's, it's not always great. And our general need to see it, I think, will only last, uh, only last so long. But for a long time, I think this is going to be our new normal when it comes to sports. So we're going to have to adapt and get used to it as quickly as we possibly can. All right, Mossy, uh, I think that's enough about uh, Bundesliga. There's still plenty of other stuff for us to talk about. When we come back, we will be uh, going through some Ask Alexi questions uh, that include uh, some uh, historic perspective on the incredible relationship between Landon Donovan uh, and Jurgen Klinsmann. We'll be talking about Zoom calls out there, uh, and we'll also be talking about stadiums in the United States relative to soccer. We know that many cultures around have... Uh, national stadiums and would, could that be or would that be something that America could do or maybe has already done so when we come back some ask Alexi you know a healthy lifestyle should be easy right you eat your veggies you drink your green smoothies you exercise to get your heart rate up and then you do yoga to bring your heart rate down all right well maybe it's not so easy but there is something that helps improve everything and you can do it with your eyes closed you know what that is it's sleep Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side. Your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep 
is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000, yes, $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed. A queen is now only $1,799. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. Ask Alexi. Okay, welcome back. Uh, we are going to go through some Ask Alexi questions out there. This is where you use that hashtag Ask Alexi and you send us in on all the social media platforms, your questions and comments, concerns, and then we pick a few of them as we did this week and uh, Mossy reads them out. Mossy, what do the good people out there want to know this week? Uh, first up, at Cam in Taunton, what caused the friction between Donovan and Klinsman? Ooh, interesting question. Taunton, by the way, uh, Taunton, Massachusetts, I think. I've, I've been there. I think I, I, there was a music studio that I used to record stuff there in, uh, in Taunton, Massachusetts, if that is the Taunton that Cam is in. Uh, good question, uh, Cam, and not necessarily an easy answer. And probably if you ask the principals uh, of uh, Landon Donovan and Jurgen Klinsmann, you would probably get two different answers. But their interesting relationship is the stuff of legend and obviously came to a head in the 2014 World Cup, the last World Cup that the men participated in, when Landon Donovan was famously left off the final roster to obviously his dismay, but certainly the dismay of a lot of American soccer fans and the head scratching of a lot of American soccer fans out there. You know, I said at the time that I actually had no problem. If a coach believes that Landon Donovan isn't right for the team, we've always said it's not about the best players, it's about the best collection of players. And if a coach believes that Landon Donovan isn't part of the best collection of players in order to win, in order to be successful, then that's fine. That can certainly happen. But you're also setting yourself up when you don't bring arguably the best American player ever to play the game, who still at that moment could provide magic moments. And if and when you needed a substitute or if and when things weren't going right, which happens in a World Cup, you were setting yourself up to be second-guessed. This, this whole relationship, I think, boils down to the fact that Landon Donovan and Jurgen Klinsmann think about themselves and think about life in very, very different ways. And when I say think about themselves in life, it's through the prism of soccer which we know both of them, it is come to define their lives in different ways. But they are both soccer people, just very, very different soccer people. You know, that Landon Donovan decided to come back to Major League Soccer. I think that that did not sit well with Jurgen Klinsmann, who we know as a player went and put himself out of his comfort zone time and time again because that's what he felt he needed to do and what he wanted to do, playing in different countries, learning different languages, playing at different teams for different managers all over Europe. The, you know, the start of Landon Donovan's career started in Germany, and he even had a spell uh, when he was at uh, Bayern Munich. So I think the way that Landon Donovan decided to navigate his career and the choices that he made already put him at odds with Jurgen Klinsmann. The way that Landon Donovan decided that he needed a sabbatical a year away 
that's not something that I think Jurgen Klinsmann, with all of his progressive and new age type of thinking and uh, persona that Jurgen Klinsmann is, that's not, that was a bridge too far. That's not something that I think he could conceive of doing. And I've said this time and time again, as American as Jurgen Klinsmann liked to portray himself, and he was, married to American, living in America, certainly an, a wonderful experience and long history with America, he still at his core was very German and is, and, and is very German. And at times that I think very much is diametrically opposed to the way that Landon Donovan saw his soccer and saw his life. And I also think that Jurgen Klinsmann, from a strategic perspective, wanted to make a statement and wanted to constantly prove that it was his way or the highway. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. There's plenty of coaches, coaches that do that. But if you bite off your nose to spite your face, that can be a problem. In order, you know, how far do you go to show that? It's all fine and well principle. But if you're doing things that are making your ability to do your job weaker, uh, and therefore less, less successful, then you have to question those decisions that you make. What it really comes down to, I think, is that I don't think this is about anybody's fault. I just think that you had two very, very powerful personas and personalities in very, very different ways that, as I said, saw themselves and saw the game in completely different ways, and it just wasn't able to mesh. And it came to a head at the World Cup. And, you know, that the, that the team did well and was successful, whatever, whatever that is, in 2014. I think there are people that are going to say that justifies the decision that Jurgen Klinsmann made or the way that he treated your, uh, Landon Donovan over the years. And there's other gonna, others going to say that, yes, but think of how much farther they could have gone if Landon Donovan had been there, if that type of weapon had been there at Jurgen Klinsmann's disposal. I don't think we'll ever, well, we're never going to know which, which is the right answer. And I think this is a situation where they're just going to have to agree to disagree on a lot of things, but agree on the fact that they just don't see themselves or the world in the same way. And that they have gone on and had to various degrees uh, success, you know, as a tribute to who they are. But sometimes things aren't just, are just not good fits. And this was a fit that no matter how hard you tried to wedge it uh, and make it fit, it was just never going to fit. And that's okay. Believe me, I've been in a lot of situations where my fit didn't work and that I was diametrically opposed to, to other people. And sometimes you have a come to Jesus moment or you recognize that you're better off together and working together and you find a way to work together. And sometimes you don't. And it just, it just didn't work. I don't know, from the outside, Mossy, anything to add uh, that you saw uh, with, with regards to this interesting and you know, fascinating and ultimately, from, from our perspective, entertaining relationship? Well, no, I mean, you mentioned Bayern. It's worth uh, reminding people, Klinsman was the coach that brought yep. Landon to Bayern and kind of snuck his ne uh, put his neck out there to bring him, and Donovan didn't really perform, so that made Klinsman look bad, and Klinsman was fired soon after, so I'm sure that doesn't help, uh, but it, I mean, it's only one of the factors. 
And then, you know, you mentioned 2014. Uh, I think specifically the Chris Wondolowski miss against Belgium. A lot of U.S. fans play the what-if game there and, and think, you know, what if that chance had fallen to Donovan? Would, you know, he have put it away? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a faction of American soccer fans uh, that look at Landon Donovan and say, what if? In that, in a strange way, he shirked his responsibility. He took the easy way out in the path that he took. And I can, I can understand that, but... I think that that path that he took, the, the value that I see is that he recognized that that was going to be the best path for him to be successful. And I think you, you know, it goes back to the, you know, the, the comfort zone thing, which, which Jurgen was famous for wanting players out of their comfort zone. And I, I agree that there is a moment and there is a circumstance and scenario when being out of your comfort zone can lead to good things. It can challenge you in different ways. It can make you into something that you never thought you could become. But I also think that there is a value to being put in a situation where you are comfortable, in your comfort zone, and understanding this is what I need to be successful. And sometimes people don't recognize that or know that. And Landon Donovan, I don't agree on with everything when it comes to Landon Donovan. He would be very different than then if we were on the same team, I, I know we would approach things very, very differently. I think I probably could, could have worked with him had we played in the same era. But I do respect the fact that he knew from a young age, I think, what he needed to do in order to be successful or his version of successful. And there is value to that. It's a good question, uh, Cam in Taunton. And there probably will be more to, that comes out when or if either of them speak publicly uh, publicly about it. And it's probably much more nuanced and complex than even we just, uh, we just discussed. But this is what you have when you have human beings working together or attempting to work together. What's the next one, Masi? Good question. Next up, at Chimichurri00, uh, what U.S. stadium would you say is the soccer mecca for the USA? So we in the United States, I, I often tell you, are in an incredibly unique situation and environment. And it's, it's, it is an apples and oranges type of situation when you compare it to pretty much anywhere else in the world. Now, there are countries and cultures out there that have national stadiums where when there is a big national team game, that's the place that everybody goes to. And it's this focal point and everybody migrates to it and celebrates the, the country because this is the one place. We don't have something like that. Part of it is our history, um, and part of it is our size. Uh, part of it is the recognition that soccer is for everyone, and so, and the the power, I guess you will, of so many different communities. So, if if it was in New York, LA would say, "Well, New York, why? Our 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 country is much more than New York," and rightfully so, they would say that in the same way that if it was LA, Atlanta would say, "Well, you know, what are we just flyover country?" So. I think it's next to impossible to have something like that. The closest thing that we have had as a, as a nation, we've talked about this before, is Columbus. And much of that is relative to U.S.-Mexico and bringing the Mexican national team there to play them and getting those three points during qualifying. Columbus, as a stadium, we all know is, is going away. And the last time that they were there, they actually lost. So I don't think that that is going to continue on. 
And I would not be in favor of United States soccer ever saying this is our national stadium. I, don't, I just don't, I think it, I don't, I don't think it's what America is about. I don't think it, what, what American soccer is about or wants to be about. I think we can go, we can, whatever stadium we're playing in, that's our national stadium. Now, <laughs> I mentioned Mexico. Mexico can kind of say the same thing. And whether it's in Los Angeles or Texas or other places, especially in the Southwest, there's plenty of stadiums that you could argue are national stadiums for Mexico when they come and play uh, in the United States. I don't know, Mossy, do you see us ever having a national stadium the way that other countries do? No, it's, it's a great point. I've thought about that. Um, obviously, the extreme example of what you're talking about is Wembley with England. But even countries like Brazil, where they spread the games out during qualifying, when Brazil hosts a major tournament, you know the finals at the Maracanã. I mean, it was the case, right. 2013 Confed Cup, 2014 World Cup, 2016 Olympics, 2019 Copa America. Same thing with Germany and the Olympic Stadium I mentioned earlier. And yeah, I mean, the U.S. doesn't even have that. You know, if, if there's like a, if the, when there is going to be in 2026 World Cup here, there's not a stadium that's like, oh, of course the final is going to be there. It, it, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I don't know. You don't, you don't think that part of the evolution of, of the sport in this country is sort of finding that place and, and cultivating that sort of, or you're okay if that never happens, if it's always kind of make it up as you go. No, because it goes back to being exclusive as opposed to inclusive. And, you know, I've talked about the fact that the, the most direct or the possibly the most direct route to a successful national team may be just creating a team from, pick your region, Southern California or something like that, putting all of our resources into one region. And sometimes we try to spread ourselves too thin. In this case, and so that, that's what that would be. It, like I said, the, the importance of Maracanã in terms of soccer history and in terms of Brazilian soccer history and just in terms of Brazil, who's competing with that? Nobody. But if we say, you know, give us what are iconic stadiums, the Rose Bowl, for example. Okay, yes, the Rose Bowl hosted multiple World Cup finals in men's and women's. Yes, it's iconic. But, you know, who's to say that Mercedes-Benz in Atlanta isn't just as entertaining, and while it doesn't have the history, it's becoming iconic from a soccer perspective. Or in, in New York uh, stadiums, or up at Gillette, or you know, pick, your, pick your stadium out there. We have so many, and we are so diverse, which is what makes our country great, but what's, what's connecting us is soccer. And I don't think, I think it would be next to impossible for the soccer community, just the soccer community, by the way, to come together and decide, yes, this is the place. You know, the soccer community, we love to argue. There's no way we're agreeing on that. One, one random stadium note, you know, I don't want to go down the uh, U.S. women's rabbit hole too much, but Dan Wetzel of Yahoo wrote a, a piece this past week sort of positing the fact that the real villain in this uh, U.S. women's equal pay story is FIFA and not U.S. soccer. And he ran down all the ways in which FIFA has done a disservice to women's soccer and shown disrespect towards it over the years. And one that he threw in there that kind of hit me funny was he said, putting the women's World Cup semifinals and final last summer in Lyon rather than Paris was ridiculous and a total joke and a sign of disrespect, just shoving it off to a smaller city. And I don't know, we were both in France for that tournament. And all I was constantly told was that Lyon is the European capital of women's soccer and that that was the appropriate place for that tournament to end. And even in interviewing the players and all the various teams, they seemed excited about playing the semifinals and finals in, in that city. So I don't know, do, do you have any, any sort of take on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, 
yeah, I, I think what you said is exactly true. I mean, when we, we were scratching our head, but we have no context. So we, we didn't know necessarily how important Lyon was to women's soccer. Uh, not not all of us. I, I didn't know because I, I didn't have that history or that understanding. And so then it made com- perfect sense. OK, I get Paris and what Paris what Paris is. And obviously we were ba- we were based in Paris. But when it comes to women's soccer, I mean, would, would anybody ever think about Columbus, Ohio when it comes to soccer? Not necessarily. And yet when you say it to an American soccer person, they know exactly what you're talking about. That, that Columbus, Ohio, why is Columbus, Ohio meant so much? So you can't, you can, can't divorce yourself just because in a, a, a greater sense, a community or a city, you don't think it means something. You can't erase the history. You can't erase the soccer. And when a lot of people, when it comes to soccer, come in from the outside and try to write it, they don't have that context. They don't have that history when it comes to what's going on. But all of this is to say that I don't think what is it, chimichurri zero zero, that certainly in my lifetime, we are ever going to see a national stadium or, by the way, to your question, a soccer mecca for the U.S. I think we're going to have multiple meccas that will continue to crop up. I mean, Atlanta, while it has a soccer history, the recent soccer history and the explosion of soccer as it relates to Atlanta United and Mercedes-Benz and the numbers that they are getting, that's a new Mecca, all right? And it's just as powerful and as important as one that's existed for a long time, like Los Angeles. So there are going to continue to be Meccas. And there are Meccas right now that we don't know have the power to be Meccas that will rise up. And people are going to say, wow, I didn't know that this soccer culture existed in this city. And sometimes, all, sometimes the, the, the spark that you need to light that fire is soccer. And you give it to these communities, you give it to these cities and these areas of the country that you didn't know, and ma'am, there you go. You got yourself a soccer fire in the best possible way. All right, what else, Mossy? All right, last one. At Between Clean Sheets, what's been the best Zoom you've hopped on on this quarantine? Well, I think I've told you that I've hopped on a couple, uh, actually a handful of soccer teams at different levels, youth soccer teams, men's, women's, college soccer teams, men's, women's. I really enjoyed speaking to the Navy's, uh, Navy men's team, uh, Flagler women. The, I guess it's the angst right now that not just college soccer players, but college athletes right now, and, and just people that are at college about what their college experience is going to be. You know, your graduation is, is out the window. Obviously, the training part of it. Uh, and while Bundesliga is coming back, I don't see college athletics coming back in any form for a long time. And certainly from a, a collegiate standpoint, what is going to college this fall? Are people going to be actually going to campuses? And if they do, then what are the changes in both in terms of the actual academics and classes uh, or living arrangements, all of those different things and sports. And so I, I think there's a lot of people with a lot of worry and angst as to what it's going to be. And I can't get on these calls and tell them what the future is, but I can talk to them about soccer and as a soccer person, and I can actually learn a tremendous amount from them. So that's, that's what I like when I get on these calls and I learn what they're doing, what they're doing to keep themselves active from a physical perspective and from a mental perspective, what the coaches are doing. And 
while in soccer, we can certainly fight amongst ourselves. I think there is a general creativity when it comes to soccer people in the United States out of necessity over the years and what we are and what we aren't and having to adjust and having to be creative in the way that we go about things that I, I think you're seeing manifest itself right now once again with this unique situation and talking to these players and talking to these coaches, they're doing things to keep themselves fit and to keep themselves healthy mentally and physically with the recognition that nobody knows what the future uh, holds. So those, those are always fun. From a personal perspective, I have a Zoom weekly Zoom drinks basically where we get on and we talk not necessarily about soccer, just about anything that's going on with, uh, uh, with some friends of mine. What did I finish uh, the other day? Uh, oh my gosh, it was wonderful. Uh, had a, uh, I finished a whole bottle of Chardonnay. I'm a big Chardonnay guy. It's some Rambauer Chardonnay. The whole bottle was gone by the time the night was gone. So you know it was a good night and it was fun. And I topped it off with some Baileys. So it was, it, it was, it, it was and it is always a highlight of my week, these, uh, these drinks, because we don't have that communal type of sharing and that communication and that contact in the traditional sense now with meeting somebody at a bar for a drink or meeting a group of people out at a restaurant for, for a meal. We, we don't have that. And Zoom is taking its place. It's, it's not ideal, but it's the best that we have right now. And at least you can, you know, shoot the shit and talk about stuff and make fun of people and, and have some drinks and uh, share. I think that's, that's what, what everybody's doing. So I don't I know I'm not giving you my best Zoom out there, but anytime I get to just share with humans, even though it's not in the traditional sense, I learn something and I benefit. I f when I get off the Zoom calls, I feel better. And we all have our ups and downs and, and good and bad days as we go through this and muddle through this together. But after having that contact, uh, even in a non-traditional sense, I feel, I feel better for these calls. I don't know. What about you, Mossy? Any great Zooms you've had out there? Well, I had a fun one recently with uh, work people, uh, Ian Joy, Warren Barden, Jovan Karofsky. But my favorite ones, and I think this is going to lead perfectly into your final thoughts, is I do a weekly call with my parents and my younger brother, and those have been a lot of fun. And the next one is scheduled for tomorrow, which will be particularly meaningful since it will be Mother's Day. Yes, it will. What do, what do you usually discuss over there with, uh, with your family? Does it just go all over the map? Yeah, I mean, I, I usually rattle off all the different shows I'm watching and books I'm reading and, and things of that nature. And, and that sort of sparks the conversation invariably. And then, and, and, you know, we talk about... Do you quickly, do you quickly fall into the pattern and, and the, uh, the, uh, the personality that you all are within your family? And does it, does it show up in a Zoom call? Or is there much more of a, I guess, a, does the... Does the screen give, give you a, a higher level of respect and therefore does it alter your behavior or is it just right back to the Mossy family dynamic? Right back to the family dynamic. And, and yeah, my, <laughs> my mother and my brother have this running joke that basically they're just spectators for these calls because it's just my dad and I going back and forth and talking about all the nonsense we usually talk about in sports and movies and all that. And they're just kind of <laughs> sitting there listening. But uh, no, they're wow. a lot of fun. All right. Well, listen, well, you mentioned it and it was a wonderful segue uh, and, and lead into this. Uh, if you are listening to this on Sunday, then you should know, uh, you better know that it is Mother's Day. And, and like a lot of days, there shouldn't just be one day. You should be celebrating mothers every single day for how important they are and, and how instrumental they are in uh, informing uh, us and helping us and supporting us and, and being mothers. So every day should be 
flag day. We shouldn't pick one day to celebrate the, the American flag. Every day should be flag day. But, you know, we have these days and we have these days where, where we celebrate. And it doesn't mean we're not celebrating the other, uh, the other days of the year, but it is Mother's Day. I have a wonderful mother in the form of uh, my wife here with my family who uh, I have incredible respect and love for everything that she does uh, for our children and the way that she is uh, a mother and does things that I can, can never, never uh, even come close to being able to doing. But I also do have an actual mother. Uh, I know a lot of people believe that I was formed in some sort of test tube out there or I'm a manufactured type of uh, product out there. But yes, I do have a mother. She is wonderful, as uh, anybody would say of their mother. She has been around uh, since the beginning <laughs> with, uh, with me. She has also been there through all the thick and thin. And as a mother has been incredibly, not just supportive, but has defended me over the years in, in numerous ways. And, and my mother has seen when my life changed uh, back in my early 20s, uh, when the whole uh, career and World Cup came about, and she, she has a whole book full of pictures of her with people dressed up as what I used to look like uh, with her arm around people with big goatees and stuff that, that are not actually, uh, actually me. She is a, uh, and I think I told you this before, she is a poet. Uh, and has been a writer for a, a number of years. Uh, she is a wonderful uh, romantic, uh, but she is whatever good part there is about me, it is in large part because of her. And she has enabled me to look at not just the game of soccer, but to look at life in a different way. And I know sometimes I can be grumpy. Sometimes I can be uh, overly pragmatic, but uh, believe it or not, there is uh, a, a romantic that lives in me what, uh, with regards to not just soccer, but a lot of different things. And I credit her with giving me the ability to, uh, to look at those things and to be romantic about things and to be okay about being uh, uh, romantic uh, about things. And while she certainly was not an athlete and didn't grow up with soccer and certainly did not with my father, didn't look at their firstborn and, and have dreams and aspirations of their firstborn being a professional athlete. In no way, in sh shape or form, does that mean that she wasn't and continues to be incredibly proud and supportive of everything uh, that I'd done. Doesn't mean she just tells me what I want to hear. Uh, you know, she agrees and she just disagrees uh, with different things that I do and have said over the years, and, and that's, so, that's okay. But ultimately, I think you would agree for those of you that have mothers that are still alive, for those of you that have mothers that are uh, mothers in, in the traditional sense in being supportive and in being positive and being important people in your life, you would agree that having that type of support is, is key. And so as you're reaching out to your uh, mothers today or have been over the last uh, uh, couple of days, uh, to Mossy's point, just don't have a be on one day. And I tend to think that mothers will appreciate it even more that call or that reach out to them that happens the day after Mother's Day or two days after Mother's Day than just, uh, than just on Mother's Day. And I'm not saying you just reach out on Mother's Day, but uh, mothers are for every single day. And thankfully, we all have them. And all of your, your athletes out there, many of them have mothers that have supported them. Some have, have had only mothers that have supported them over the years. And that doesn't go away after you stop kicking the ball. That doesn't go away after you get ready to turn 50. That doesn't go away. When you have gray in your beard, uh, they will always be your mother. And so, mom, I love you. 
if you are listening to this, I know she does listen to this. Uh, and I know that she does uh, find ways to see what I'm doing, because this is an opportunity, yet another opportunity for her, her to see her son. I'm wishing all of the mothers out there a wonderful Mother's Day. I'm wishing your mom, Masi, a, a wonderful Mother's Day. Have a great uh, weekend. As we said, a week from now, we will be watching soccer. We will be watching Bundesliga soccer. Hopefully, it all goes great. Masi, anything to say to the folks before we head out? No, that's it. Happy Mother's Day to everybody out there. And uh, size the day. <laughs> size the day. There you go, my mo- Mossy. Take it, taking it away. I love it though. I love, I love hearing you, uh, you say that. Absolutely, size the day. Uh, subscribe, rate, review, download, do all the different things out there. Whether it's on uh, Apple Podcast, whether it's on Spotify. Uh, whether it's uh, on uh, YouTube where you're watching and having a look at our ugly mugs out there. Thank you so much for all the support that you give for this, uh, this podcast. Onward and upward. Uh, I hope you're staying safe. I hope you're staying uh, healthy. I hope you're staying sane. And we will talk again uh, next week. And as Mossy said, size the deck. <laughs> <laughs>